Let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Acts this morning. We've been in a series that we've entitled Unstoppable. And uh, we have been uh, chronicling uh, the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. Uh, for those that weren't with us uh, last year, for all of last year, we dealt with the first part of the book of Acts and looked at the beginning of the church. And we did so under the heading Unfinished. And we have learned that while the work is much was done in the early church, we've still got a work to do in the 21st century. And we need to be reminded... As we're being reminded through the text of the book of Acts that this mission that we're on, that this gospel uh, ambassadorship that God has called us to as followers of his uh, is an unstoppable work. And no matter what the early church had thrown at it, whether it was persecution or imprisonment or trials or tribulations, every time the devil in this world tried to stop the church, the church only got stronger and the gospel went farther and farther. And I want to remind us of that truth this morning, that God has given us an unstoppable gospel Uh, Brothers and sisters, let us never forget, Jesus wins, amen? He wins. And so we have this opportunity to be on the winning team, declaring to the world uh, the need for them to turn from their sins and to fall and throw themselves into the arms of Jesus, who alone is able to save. And this morning, we are going to learn about the work that God was doing in Philippi. Last week, we learned uh, that Philippi was a leading city in the region of Macedonia, uh, which is now modern-day Greece. Uh, They had been spending their time in what is now modern-day Turkey, but on the second missionary journey, Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke uh, have headed over uh, to Macedonia, and they visit the leading city of Philippi. When they're there, they come in contact with a prayer group, a group of ladies that pray by a riverside, and they share the good news of Jesus Christ, and Lydia, a wealthy woman of the day, uh, her heart was open to receive the things of the Lord, and she became a follower of Jesus Christ, was baptized, and and opened her heart and her home uh, to this missionary team. While going back and forth and sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with these ladies, a slave girl who was filled with a demon spirit mocks them as they come and go. He, she mocks these men and says that they are servants of the Most High God and that they have come to bring forth the way of salvation and mocking them for the mission that they were doing. At some point we are told that Paul gets aggravated with this mocking and he commands the spirit to come out of the slave girl and she's exercised of her demon and she's brought into the family of God. And what we see now, now twice, in Lydia's conversion and in the exorcism of the demon out of this servant or slave girl uh, who had been given the ability to tell fortunes, we see that what God had called uh, Paul and Silas and their team to do, and that is to go to Macedonia, is vast validated by the receiving of the gospel in Philippi. And we're going to see that transpire in a third person this morning. That is the jailer. And we'll get to why the jailer's involved and and all of that. But three very different people with very distinct uh, backgrounds, and yet God uses the same gospel to change their lives. And God would move in such a way in the city of Philippi that a church would be started. A church would be started, and this church would be a church that would be a source of such great joy to the Apostle Paul that he would write a letter to the uh, church in Philippi under the heading, of course, of Philippians, the, the Philippians of the church of Philippi. And, and he shares great truths of joy that this group of believers brought. Many believe that Philippi or the Philippians were the favorite church, if you will, 
of the Apostle Paul. And, and here's one of the reasons why. One, one Bible writer puts it this way. The church of Philippi was always a favorite with Paul. As you can see reading the letter to the Philippians. The nucleus of that church was made up of a wealthy woman, a slave girl, and a Roman jailer. Such is the grace of God. Christ takes the weak things of the world and confounds the mighty. And that's what God is doing today. He's taking people from all backgrounds... All circumstances, rich, poor, young, old, men, women, people who are hungry for the, uh, to hear about God, people who don't want nothing to do with God, and the grace of God brings these people together under the gospel of Jesus Christ. He did it in the first century, and brothers and sisters, I want you to know he does it today. And we are seeing that unstoppable work, not only in the Fox Valley area, but all over the world through our missionary partners. And that's why we praise the name of Jesus Christ. And so this morning we're going to look at Acts chapter 16 and what has started out as a good experience in the, in the city of Philippi turns really, really bad really, really quickly. And it's not because they've done anything wrong. In fact, they've done great good, we're going to see, because where we finished off was they had Exercise the demon out of this servant girl. And what transpires really is kind of dumbfounding or confounding, if you will. Um, so let's look at verses 19 through 34. Acts chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, grab that pew rack Bible in front of you and you can turn to page 925 where we'll be this morning. Here's what the text says. But when her owners, that is the slave girl's owners, saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged him into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, those are the city leaders, if you will, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city and they advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in in attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight... Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Let's stop there and pray. Father God, we come before you, and we thank you for another opportunity to open your word this morning. And Lord, I pray as we open it that we'll have our hearts opened as Lydia's was to hear what you have to say to us this morning. 
Father, I pray that through the preaching and proclamation of your truth, that lives would be changed. First of all, Lord, starting with my own, that you would change me and make me more like your son, Jesus. And in turn, Lord, that you would do so for every follower of yours in this place. Lord, I pray this morning that if there's anyone here who's never trusted you, as we'll see this morning, trusted you as your Savior and Lord, Lord, that that today would be the day of their salvation, that they might know without a shadow of a doubt that they are saved by your amazing grace. So, Lord, I pray that you would go before us this morning and you would teach us your word, we ask. In Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. It has been said that prison changes people. Maybe it's the hard life that prison brings. Maybe it's the opportunity to sit and think about the wrongs you've done. But we have learned over and over again that prison has a unique way of changing the hearts of people. That's one of the reasons why we as a church send teams into state penitentiaries to share the good news of Jesus Christ and to proclaim the gospel to prisoners. Because they have a unique way of listening and hearing and being changed by by a gospel that we, many who are free, might not even think about or are too distracted to even be concerned about. And this heart of sharing the gospel with prisoners started in Philippi, but it's been going on for centuries now. Oh, one man I want to introduce you to is a man named Tom. Uh, Tom I got to know, and Tom would tell the story that as a young man, he spent more time in prison than he did outside of prison. His first stint in prison was a juvenile uh, incarceration at the young age of 15. And he would go in and out, drug charges, drinking charges, uh, all kinds of theft and burglary. For the next 15 years of his life, Tom would spend in and out of prison. And it would be a marked spot in his life, never thinking he could get any better. He would come out of prison with every intention of being better, only to find himself falling back into bad habits. Tom was a guy you did not want your young daughter to bring home uh, for Thanksgiving. Let me show you a picture of my friend Tom. This was Tom. This was uh, his incarceration in 1977 uh, in Omaha. I believe those charges, if I remember him telling me right, were drug charges. He was uh, a marijuana dealer and he was heavily involved with cocaine. His life was going nowhere. But this man, Looking just like this, on December 28th, 1979, in a prison in Nebraska, would ask his cellmate a question. You see, on December 28th, uh, right after Christmas, the Gideons had come and had handed out some gifts that Christmas. The gifts they were allowed to hand out were New Testament Bibles and some fruit, orange and apples, he, he told me. And he saw his friend reading the New Testament that had been given to him. And in anger, just a couple days after Christmas, he asked his cellmate, why are you reading this book? This book gives no hope. This book gives no answers. We're prisoners. We're never going to change. And the cellmate said that he had been involved in a Bible study we, uh, recently outside of prison. He was serving some time. And he had met a pastor who had shared some things about Jesus. And what he began to share was that he wasn't fully bought into it, his cellmate said. But it was starting to make lots of sense. 
The next time that there was visitor day, Tom asked for that pastor who was leading the Bible study to come because he had questions. He wanted a Bible. And that pastor on December 28th, 1979, led this man, Tom, to know Jesus once and for all. And it would change Tom's life. Now, I got to be honest with you, as Tom got out of prison, Tom would find himself in prison again and again and again. Now you say, well, doesn't prison change you? Well, yeah, Tom kept going back to prison, not as a prisoner, but seeking to be a missionary who would set free other prisoners with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he would do that for the rest of his life. He would do that in Pennsylvania, he would do that in Nebraska, and then he would finally do it in the latter part of his life here in the Fox Valley area through Wayside Cross's New Life Corrections Ministry. That's where I in this church would come to know Tom Beatty, a man who was forever changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ in a cell. And he would go and he would dedicate his life to share the good news of Jesus Christ up to his death two years ago. Uh, One of the last pictures that we have is a picture we took at this church here in our foyer of Tom after one of his banquets where he was uh, raising awareness of the work that God was doing in prisons everywhere. You see, brothers and sisters, prison changes people. And the Philippian jailer would be changed because of a couple prisoners that he had, listen, in custody for a matter of a, of a handful of hours. But in prison, he would come to recognize the grace of Almighty God through the suffering of two great and noble missionaries. And it's through that prison experience that we come to learn some truths. Now, I want to remind you of something, because right away, we say, well, listen, I've not spent any time in prison. Uh, I don't want to ask how many people have spent time in prison because there will be people that some will not want to raise their hands with regards to. But I'm glad that most of you can say you've not spent any time in jail or you haven't been arrested. That's a good thing for a pastor to hear. But can we just acknowledge this morning that prison always isn't always a place behind locked doors. It isn't with bars. Some of our prisons that we face today are medical prisons, are, are relational prisons, spiritual prisons, emotional prisons. Some of us are in a financial prison right now, and those prisons are different, but sometimes just as debilitating as a uh, real-life prison uh, in the physical sense. And this morning, we learned some truths that no matter what prison we find ourselves in, it is there that God can meet us, and He can save us, and He can change us to be more like His Son, Jesus Christ. To do that, let's look at three things this morning. I'll move through them very quickly. Um, But three things that we see from our text. The first thing I want you to see is that from our text, we learn a truth that sometimes life stinks. Write that down. Sometimes life stinks. Can I get an amen? There are just times, frankly, where chapters of our lives are no fun. There are times in our life that we would say, you know what, God? Time out. I want out. And some of us have dealt with those for short periods of time. Others have dealt with times where we just say, this life really stinks. And I know as a Christian we're not supposed to say that, that God's mercies are new every morning. But there are circumstances in our lives that at times where we just say, maybe as a follower of Jesus Christ, Lord, just take me home. 
I don't want to be here anymore. Life on this earth isn't that much fun. Well, we see this truth in the life of Paul and Silas. Now, they've just done an amazing work. They've led a wealthy woman, Lydia, to the Lord. They've declared the good news of Jesus Christ to her, and she's changed. She's excited about what God is doing in her life. And then they set free a demon-possessed girl who is enslaved by masters who use her ability because of the demon to tell the future. They marginalize her and use her for their great monetary gain. They want to see her stay in the bondage of the demon. But Paul and Silas set her free and set her on a course to know the one true God and to be filled by the Holy Spirit, not some demon spirit. And what does that get them? These two wonderful events in Philippi, what does it get them notice? But when the owners, verse 19, saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers, and when they brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews, they're disturbing our city, they advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Now let's stop there for a moment. Like Jesus who was doing good, the leaders of the city take Jesus into court and they start charging him with things. Now I want you to notice what Paul and Silas are charged with. Number one, they are charged because of their ethnicity. These men are Jews. Now let me just stop there for a moment. Racism is something that comes out of us when we start with someone's nationality or skin color. These men are Jews. That's a problem, is what these Roman magistrates are saying. They're a problem because they're those kinds of people. It should never be a part of the humor, or the Christian's words to start talking about people with regards to their nationality first. They are first and foremost a creature and creation of God like all of us are. So here's this anti-Semitic statement, these are Jews, as if to say they're a problem because they're these kinds of people. Notice there's a civil charge, so it's ethnic first, it's civil second. Notice they are disturbing our city. What are they doing? They're setting people free, they're giving people hope, and they're saying in a lie, they're disturbing our city, they're, they're ruining the status quo. Now, remember, the reason why the men are mad at Paul and Silas is because the ability for the owners to make money off the servant girl had been taken away. Her spirit of divination was gone. Why aren't they speaking of that? Why do they speak of they're disturbing the city? Then they go on and they say it's a religious thing. Well, they're uh, uh, advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Why don't they just lead with, hey, we had this girl, we had this business on the side where this girl could tell fortunes and we would bring people to her, she would tell their fortunes and we would make money off of her. The reason why is this, they were probably doing something that was illegal. Okay? So they can't lead with that because it would be like the mob coming in and saying the missionaries are causing trouble. What are they causing trouble with? Never mind. We can't tell you. And so they come up with a cockamamie excuse, three different uh, reasons as to why none of them hold any kind of uh, uh, grounding in court. But notice what happens. Who cares about the court 
when there's a crowd. Notice verse 22, the crowd joined in. Oh, Christian, be very, very careful in our day and age in joining a crowd. A crowd that specially speaks ill and does things uh, that, that are wrong in the sight of God. This crowd is a mob. And the mob of people speak to their magistrates and say, listen, we don't like these guys. Probably because they were working off of this little girl's spirit of divination. It had worked from the people at Philippi had used this, this young girl in, in massive ways. And they didn't want to see it go. And so these guys who had taken the spirit of divination away were upset. Notice what they did. They joined in in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave them orders to beat these two with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them and threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely, having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. And I'll just stop there. So you've got a kangaroo court the mob takes over. They begin to abuse and attack Paul and Silas. And then they begin to beat them with many blows. And then they put them into prison. Now I want you to know that be- the reason why life stinks is because in circumstances like this, this kind of prison life, if you will, is painful. It's painful. Now, I want us to be very, very careful. This is a very famous story. Many of you, no doubt, if you grew up in the church, heard the story of Paul and Silas singing in prison. And I want us to be really, really careful that we don't go with if, and, and I'll say this, and only the church people will know this, the flannel graph story of Paul and Silas. How many of you are there with me? The flannel graphs. Remember old, well, our old Sunday school teachers, Robin, I'm sorry, the old Sunday school teachers would get up and they would tell us that Paul and Silas, and they have these little figurines, that they would put on this flannel graph and they would walk and the good Sunday school teachers would come up with different voices and different actions and and what would be said is, well, they they got beat up a little bit. I, I want us to be very, very careful that what is being described is a hellish experience. The phrase beaten with rods, if you were to do any research of Roman history, to be beaten with rods would involve this. Number one, a continual beating for about 30 minutes. Okay? This isn't a couple boom, boom, okay, I'm done. It would involve 12 of the strongest men in the city. They would be given birchwood clubs. And what would happen is, is you would be uh, uh, pulled apart by your four extremities, and people would grab the clubs, and they would perpetually beat you for a period of 30 minutes. They would beat you not to kill you. Romans had a way of killing. It's called crucifixion. That's not what they did. This wasn't a a crucifixion. This is a beating. They want you to be hurt, and they want you to feel it for a long period of time. After the 30 minutes are done, I want you to think you're spread out, and you're being beaten. Every inch of your body is being beaten. At the end of it, Roman historians tell us that what would happen is, is that the largest of the men who was a part of the beating, and he usually was a professional beater, if you will, he would then bind you up like a, like a livestock animal, and your feet would be left exposed, and he would stand as your, the bottoms of your feet are before him, and he would take the club and he would break your feet. Wham, wham, wham. 
Think of all the bones that are in the human foot. The agony of not being able to tell him to stop or do anything. I want you to recognize this isn't a little dust up. This is heinous. Because what we do is we sanitize these kinds of stories and we say, well, of course it was easy for Paul and Silas to sing praises. They got knocked around a little bit and I've been knocked around a little bit and I'm able to praise God. No, they were beaten to an inch of their lives. Now here's the crazy thing. This is where history and this is where Luke as the biblical writer does a phenomenal job of drawing in what's taking place. Notice in the text what the the jailer does. It says he puts them into the inner prison and fastens their feet in the stocks. That's important. Now remember, what's the last part of the body that gets beaten? The feet. What do you do to put a person in agony who has broken or bruised up feet? You put them in a harness that would go from their feet probably up beyond their knees so you couldn't move back or forth. You couldn't sleep, so it was a sleep deprivation tool. But it would force the person who had been beaten with many blows, especially the feet, to have to hold the weight of the person. Now think about that. Your feet are broken or badly bruised. And now you've got to stand all night and do it. Painful, painful experience. So notice, what do they do? My text tells me that after they did this, they complained. Notice in the text. And Paul and Silas yelled and screamed at God, How dare you do these things to us, God? you see it in the text? No. They made a deal with God. God, if you can get us out of this then we'll serve you. No. You don't see them trying to talk their way out of the prison. They'll try to work their way out, trying to bribe or barter with them. What are they doing? About midnight, verse 25 says, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Now right away, we need to stop and we need to say, how in the world could they do this? And every good Christian, every good Christian should say, I want that kind of faith when I'm beaten to an inch of my life. Again, whether physically, emotionally, spiritually, psychologically, you name it. Lord, when bad things come, that's how I want to respond when suffering comes. So what did they do? They were persevering. They, they showed perseverance. And that's what we've got to recognize. So maybe you're in a point in your life where life stinks right now. And my heart breaks for you. Because if we had any amount of time and we're honest, some of the stories that we would hear, some of the things that some of you are facing would be heartbreaking. And in that, God doesn't say, well, when the going gets tough, give up. When the going gets tough, you don't have to be holy anymore. When the going gets tough, God's okay with you to spout off some sinful things. No, when the going gets tough, God tells us through the words of the Apostle Paul to endure hardship like a good soldier. And that's what Paul and Silas do. They endure it. But but the question is how? How do they show this kind of perseverance? Write these three things down. I'll do them very quickly. Just put them on the side of your outline. To show this kind of perseverance, number one, begins by us complying, complying with God's plans. We have to be compliant. We have to be flexible. We have to be moldable. 
And a lot of times, as Christians, we are moldable to the things and plans of God. Listen very carefully. We are moldable to the things and plans of God when everything's going our way. It's not hard to follow God when there's money in the bank account, when the marriage is strong, when the kids are obedient, uh, when, when family relationships are going the way they need to be, and everything is good. It is not hard to love God when things are going well. And don't fall prey to people that say that you are a faithful individual because your life is always good and you're always healthy and you're always wealthy and all of that. That's, that's garbage. Because what we see over and over and over again is life stinks sometimes, even for the most faithful of followers of Jesus Christ. And what Paul and Silas say is, God, whether you're being uh, incredibly gracious and loving and, and blessing us beyond measure with all the good things, we'll praise you. But whether we find ourselves beaten and abused and accused of all kinds of garbage and in prison with no sense of a release coming anytime soon, what are we going to do? The same thing we do in the good times. We worship and pray and praise the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the kind of compliance we need. Job told his wife this. After all of Job's trials and tribulations, he tells his wife, can we receive the good things from God and not the bad? And some of us, quite frankly, have a 50% Christianity. We receive the good things from God and we're out of there as soon as bad things happen. In the sports world, we call those types of Christians fair weather fans. And truly, in the end, they're no fans at all. Paul and Silas were compliant in the good times and in the bad. How? They cultivated joy. Write that down. We have to cultivate joy. Now, right away, we say, well, uh, joy, happiness. No, joy and happiness are two very different things. Happiness is based on circumstances. Joy is in spite of circumstances. Joy has been defined uh, in the following way. It is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as He causes us to see the beauty of Christ in times of great triumph and even in greater times of tribulation. Do you have joy? An ability to have a sweet spirit of yourself in the most difficult of circumstances. Can I just tell you, joy is a choice you have to make. One of my favorite books by author John Piper is, I Choose Joy. Because we, it's not going to come naturally to us. Think of it this way. Joy is the byproduct, and, and maybe write this down, especially if your life stinks right now and your attitude stinks with it, and I get it. Joy is the result of you seeing Christ as greater than your circumstances. That you see Jesus bigger and more clearly and more radiant than the problems, the pain, the sorrow that you find yourself facing today. So, let's put it in Paul and Silas. They see Jesus. How can they worship and praise Jesus? Because Jesus is far grander, far more magnificent, far more majestic, far more awesome 
than anything that would come their way. Being beaten to an inch of their life, being thrown in prison, being falsely accused, being a follower of Jesus Christ was way better than any of that would ever do to cause them not to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So when life stinks, when life throws you all kinds of horrific things, you have a choice. You can become bitter or you can become better for Christ. And when we become better for Christ, Christ by the Holy Spirit gives us this joy that wells up within us that says my circumstances may stink, but I still love Jesus. I still want to follow Jesus, and I still want to stick to the plans of Jesus, no matter how difficult it is. Notice one final thing that they were able to do. They were confident in the promises of God. They were confident in the promises of God. Now, I'll fast forward a little bit. Years later, Paul, the same Paul who was beaten into an inch of his life and thrown into prison and was able to sing and to pray and to praise the name of God and was ready to give a reason for the hope that he had in Christ Jesus when the Philippian jailer asks, this Paul reminds us of where we need to be so that we can respond as he did when Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? What can men do to us? Paul says, no, in fact, brothers and sisters, you and I are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. And when we recognize that we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus, when we truly recognize that we have victory in Christ Jesus, whatever the world may throw our way, we will be like Peter who says these light and momentary trials do not compare to the riches of the glory that God will reveal one day. And then, and only then, when life stinks, will we be able to praise and proclaim and pray to the God who saves? Notice that's the second point. Why could they do this? Because they believed in a God who saves. So notice what happens. They're in prison at, at midnight. They're singing and praising God. And what transpires? An earthquake takes place. And it awakes the... Uh, the jailer, the jailer comes running, he's concerned because this earthquake that has taken place has knocked the, the prison literally off of its foundations. The doors have all swung open, the stocks that held all of these individuals all are open. Well, you got to say, that's one unique earthquake, uh-huh, right? It accomplished exactly what God wanted to do. Now, we don't know how widespread this earthquake was, but we know it imp impacted the jail for sure. If it, 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 it issue was an earthquake that, that hit all of Philippi, we don't know. Macedonia, we don't know, but it hit the jail where these men were at. And the jailer is ready to kill himself. Why? Because the jailer's job is, is single-folded, if you will. He's got one job to do. And his one job is to make sure the prisoners stay in the prison. They're not in the prison, right? The doors are open. What do prisoners do when doors open? They run. But they don't. Why? 
Something unique happened in that prison. Now, you would say, well, it's easy. Paul and Silas didn't run, but surely all the other prisoners did. No, notice in the text that Paul says, no, we're all here. All the prisoners are here. Something happened at midnight in the life of those prisoners. They saw something in Paul and Silas that caused them to be obedient even to what Paul and Silas said. Let me tell you something. When you suffer well for Christ, unbelievers will take notice. They'll take notice. And notice what he does. He comes in and he beelines to Paul and Silas, verse uh, 29. And he trembles with fear and he falls down before him. Why? Why? What would cause him to do that? Did he think that the earthquake came from Paul and Silas's God? How does he know what God they serve? Well, it seems like the word of the slave girl, just go back to verse 17, that the slave girl crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation had gotten to the ears of the Philippian jailer. These guys are with the one true God. The one true God who sets his people free. Zeus hadn't done that. Apollo hadn't done that. Aphrodite's and Hermes had never done that before. And all the different Greek gods of their day, none of the gods of the Roman mythology had done that. The God that these men served, the God who brought salvation through these men, uh, through their proclamation, had, had done a moving of the building. And he says, I want to be saved by this God. I want to know what it means to know salvation. And notice, how does God save? In verse 31. The greatest question, by the way, verse 30, the greatest question anybody can ask is, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be saved, you and your household. Let's just stop there for a moment very quickly. Let's recognize and know what are they talking about. Number one, recognize the simplicity of it the simplicity of the gospel. There's no rules and regulations. He doesn't say, all right, by the way, let me get my portfolio out. A Philippian jailer, here's what needs to be done. Get a pen and paper. You need to write these things down. Number one, number two, number three. With all these provisos, with all of these disclaimers, here's the rules and regulations of what it means to be saved. No, he doesn't do that. There's a simple gospel. Notice number two, it isn't a process it isn't a process where, uh, um, you know, you do this, wait a little while, you do that. He says, do this and you are saved. Number three, there's no preparation. He isn't like, listen, I'll come back next Friday and I'll have you take a test. So study up, know who Jesus is, know who Peter is, know who the Moses and Abraham are. There's no preparation. It's a simple gospel. And the simple gospel has three elements to it, Okay. Three elements. Number one, the right posture. He says, believe. Believe. Now I want you to get out of your mind that belief is just a mental assent about facts about Jesus. And here's why. The book of James makes it clear that the demons believe and they shudder. And that kind of belief isn't good enough to be saved. So to say, I believe in the things of God isn't good enough. One Bible translator put it this way. Belief is one person throwing all of who they are into the arms of another. 
It is what you do at the end of a hard day and you're exhausted and you throw yourself and all of your weight and all of who you are into your bed. You're exhausted. And you are depending on that bed or that chair to hold all of you as you thrust yourself upon it to be held. Belief, brothers and sisters, is our throwing all of who we are, all of our sin, all of our dysfunction, all of our hopes, all of our dreams, all of our temptations, all of who we are. We thrust ourselves into the arms of another. And what Paul says is, I want you to throw yourself, Philippian jailer, into the arms of another. That's the posture. Complete and utter um, uh, disposal of oneself to the command of another. Well, who's the other? Notice the person. In the Lord Jesus. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Not a religion. Not a movement. Not a set of ideals into a person. Throw yourself into the arms of Jesus. Jesus gave this invitation when he said to the crowd that he had compassion on. He said, come to me, all who are weary, all who are exhausted, all who are broken, and I will give you rest. So as we throw ourselves at Jesus with all of our sin and all of our dysfunction and all of our troubles, Jesus says, I am able to carry you. I am able to sustain you. But even greater, I am able to save you. How does he do that? Because he's the son of God. And he lived a life of perfection. And he went to the cross and he died on our behalf so that through his shed blood we might have eternal life. And then he proved his power over the grave and and death by rising again. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father and all who will call upon Jesus, whether you're a Philippian jailer or you work in a grocery store or you're a Fortune 500 executive, it doesn't matter who you are, God says, all who come, I will no wise cast out. And so he's receiving people And the promise, write this down The promise that is given is you'll be saved No more having to strive No more having to toil No more having to try to figure this out on your own You now have the power of Christ Through the Holy Spirit living through you So that in this life you might find abundance In this life you might find contentment and peace And in the life to come You will spend eternity with your Father and Savior in heaven That is what was offered to the Philippian jailer. And that is, listen very carefully, is what's offered today in this place. The gospel of Jesus Christ. The Philippian jailer, notice in the text, what does he do? He believes. Not only him, but his entire household, his entire family. He articulates what transpires in all of his family. Verse 32 were saved. Notice that very hour, he would be baptized at once. At once. Listen, I don't want to. I don't want to guilt anybody here, but but a great reminder that if you are a child of God and you have not been baptized, you are out of place with regards to New Testament Christianity. We are to be saved, and at once. We are to be baptized. But I got this issue. At once we are to be baptized. But I don't like being in front of people. At once we are to be baptized. Over and over again, they were saved and they were baptized. Listen, does baptism bring salvation? No. 
But it needs to happen. Why? Because what happens in salvation with us happens on the inside. And nobody will know what happens on the inside unless we declare it on the outside. And so God knows that He knows the human heart and you're saved. Listen, if you've trusted Christ and believed in Christ, you're saved. I'm not taking that away from you. But only God and you know that. And God says that you need to be a light to the world. And the first group of people you should be a light to is other believers. So be baptized. And that's why God said, go into all the world and proclaim my gospel to all and baptize them. It's the first command every Christian needs to follow. At once, he was baptized. Brothers and sisters, are we in our times where life is difficult, are we ready to share the good news of Jesus Christ? Or are we licking our wounds? Paul and Silas were able to share the good news of Jesus Christ because their sight was not, their gaze was not upon their circumstances, but on Christ the entire time. Notice finally, we see that life stinks, God saves, and finally, and I won't take long on this, Christians share, Christians share, We see two types of sharing in this text. First of all, the sharing of our hope. Write that down. The sharing of our hope. This week you're going to leave this place, you're going to go to your workplaces, to your school, and I want you to ask the question, who out there needs hope? Who out there needs peace? Who out there is missing joy? And when you see that in someone, proclaim it to them. This last week, uh, um, I had the opportunity I had to drop off uh, Amanda's car to be fixed to a mechanic that I've been getting to know little by little. And uh, he told me, I asked, how are you doing? And he just openly said, man, I'm not doing real well. I'm running this business for the last three years, and, and I just found out that I have to move, and I have no place to go. And the business that I've built up for the last three years is going to fall apart unless I have a place where I can fix cars. And I said, okay. I said, listen, let me tell you what I do when I have no hope. I turn to God and I pray and I ask God to, to, uh, to lead me and guide me and to give me wisdom. And, and, and friend, I, I wanna, I wanna pray that for you. And he says, you do that? And I said, yeah, I'll do that. And right there, amongst the lifts and all of that, I sit there and I pray with the guy. At the moment that I'm praying, another customer walks in. Whoa, whoa, I thought this was a mechanic shop. No, my bad, my bad. And he, no, come on in. I'm just praying for this guy. I want to keep him, I want to keep him in business. I want to keep him full of hope. It didn't help when the bill came, by the way. (laughs) But that's all right, because I got an opportunity. I got an opportunity to give a reason for the hope that I have in Christ Jesus. And listen, that's not just my job because I'm the pastor. Listen, I never told this guy I was a pastor. He knows me as Tim from 5Bs. I shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with him and where he can find hope. That his hope isn't found on whether he has a place to do business or not. And brothers and sisters, we've got an opportunity to share the hope we have. Peter says that we are to uh, uh, be ready for every opportunity to give a reason for the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. And that's our role this weekend. Notice we need to share our homes. You're like, what? Share our homes? Notice verse 34. 
Then he brought him up into his house and he set food before him and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. The first thing that this Christian guy did after being baptized was he opened his house with hospitality. Now this isn't the first time we see it in Acts. I didn't talk about it last week. But notice in verse, uh, let's see here, 15. And after Lydia was baptized in her household as well, she urged us saying, if you judge me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. We share our hope. And our hope is in many ways theoretical, right? You can't grab a hold of hope. It's an anchor that holds our souls in place, but it's hard to tell someone that. And so what do we share with them? Our home, our temporal dwelling. And Lydia did it, and the jailer did it, and we as Christians need to do it. And I just want to say, in 2018, we live in mansions compared to what they had in Philippi. But my house isn't nice enough. That's okay. They weren't that nice in Philippi. My food isn't that great. That's all right. It wasn't that great in Philippi. And who says you have to offer food? Notice what what these people did. It says that he bound up their wounds. He washed their wounds. Is someone broken around you that needs some washing of wounds? Invite them into your home. Love on them. Care for them. Encourage them. Minister to them. Another follower of Jesus Christ or maybe a neighbor or someone that needs some encouragement or hope. One of the ways we proclaim the good news of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ is by sharing our temporal goods, whether home or car or money or time or resources with those around us. And listen, right away someone will say, well, that's just not my spiritual gift. Well, get it. Get it. Well, I'm I'm an introvert. That's okay. Invite other introverts over. Share your hope by sharing your home. Okay? Acts 16 reminds us that sometimes God allows prisons. And remember, God used prisons. One of the sermon series I want to do from, uh, from time to time is all of the different references of prisons throughout the Old and New Testament. It's a fascinating study. And how God used prisons masterfully in the life of his children. And sometimes God's going to call you to, to have to live in a prison and life is going to stink. But in those moments, suffer well, sing and praise and see God is greater than your circumstances. Because when you do, God will give you unique opportunities in those prisons to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And when those opportunities come, share the hope you have and whatever else you've got in your disposal, share it as God has shared his goodness and his love to you by bringing you out of death and into life.